If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, and we'll be looking at verses 17 through to chapter 4, verse 1. So Philippians 3, starting in verse 17, and then to chapter 4, verse 1. Let me read that for us. Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Let's pray. Father, as we look at your word now, give us ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to receive your truth. Help us by your spirit to behold the wonder of Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his precious name. Amen. Can everyone hear me okay? Because I know the fans are quite loud. Everyone can hear me okay? All right, great. Well, if I were to ask you, What is one of the best defenses against sin and temptation in your life? I wonder how you might answer that question. Maybe you would say that one of the best defenses is having a prayer life or daily Bible reading and devotions. Or or maybe it's putting up boundaries, putting boundaries in place so that you don't cross the line. But I wonder how many of us would answer that question with, immersing oneself around mature and godly Christians. Yet that's precisely Paul's instruction here for these believers in Philippi. Several weeks ago, we looked at the examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus in chapter 2. Paul upholds these two men as worthy examples to be followed. We are to reflect what they reflect. And then here in chapter 3, Paul uses his own life as an example to be followed. And we know this based upon these specific two commands that we read here in verse 17. He says, imitate and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Imitate me and watch. Watch those who are worthy of of, of your allegiance, of your obedience. So... So first thing that I want us to see here is that Paul is calling us to watch and imitate the godly among you. And first he says, imitate me. Imitate me. Brothers, join in imitating me. So Paul's commanding these believers to imitate his way of life. 
specifically in regards to what he has just expressed in the previous verses. In verses 7 through 14, Paul expresses that his whole purpose, his whole aim, his whole goal in life is to know Christ and to gain more of him in all of his fullness. He wants to know Christ and be found in Christ above all other things. In other words, Paul's saying, seek to imitate me in my all-consuming pursuit of knowing and treasuring Jesus above all other things. This isn't a statement of arrogance on the part of Paul, but rather it's the statement of a father to his children teaching them how to live by following his own example. Just as Christina read for us about Timothy and and Paul, and Paul talks about how Timothy basically copied everything that Paul did. And Paul's command to imitate him is due to the fact that he himself is an imitator of Christ. As he writes in 1 Corinthians 11.1, Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ Jesus. In other words, the the worthiness of following Paul is solely dependent upon how much he reflects Christ in his own life. Without such a reflection in his own life, Paul wouldn't be worthy of our imitation. Now, not only does he call these believers to imitate them, him, but he also commands them to watch intently those who walk according to the example you have in us. Now the us there is most likely referring to Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus. But he says here in verse 17, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. In other words, in your own congregation, in your own local church, observe and watch those who are worthy to be followed. Now this phrase, keep your eyes, has the idea of exerting effort in continually acquiring information regarding some matter with the implication of concern as to how to respond appropriately to what you have observed. In other words, Paul's saying that there's an intensity to this watching. Be on the lookout for the godly among you. Watch them, observe them, then imitate them. You know, an implication of this as Christians means that living the Christian life is a communal experience. It is a communal experience. It must be done in community. It's a one another experience. I remember talking to a dear sister in the Lord, a dear friend, and she was from a specific group and they were all believers and they were part of a church. And I noticed, however, that that compares to her friends, she had grown so much more in her faith, even though they were both, all her friends were a similar time, had come to faith in Christ and, and were a part of the church, but she had grown just in ways that the others had not. And I, I wondered why that was. And, and I asked her, why is it that it seems like you have grown in ways that others did not? She didn't say this arrogantly, but she said to me, fundamentally, the difference between me and my friends is that I chose to immerse myself around godly Christians. I chose to invite myself over to people's houses so that I could see moms and dads and how they interact with their children. 
You know, th this is one of the concerns I have about churches that, that mainly target a specific category, age category. We're going to be a, a young adult church. We're, we're a university church. You know, a church made up of young, immature 19-year-olds who think they know far more than they actually do is a very dangerous thing when there are not other mature, godly Christians present. Or it's, or it's a church that, that loves to do every kind of ministry based upon age. So we have a, a youth service during the Sunday morning service that is separate from the corporate worship of the adults. Our youth need to see their parents singing praises to God. Our young people need to see their parents confessing their sins corporately to God. They need to see their parents listening attentively to the word of God. They need worthy examples to be followed. The other problem we have is that too many Christians think they can have Jesus without being a part of his church. They don't need worthy examples. They don't need godly men and women. It's just me and Jesus. When Gracie and I were in Spain uh, two weeks ago, we were sitting down at a cafe and I overheard this conversation between these two women and this, this one woman was very spiritual. And I don't mean spiritual in a good way. She was basically explaining to this other lady all these spiritual things about the Old Testament and the Elohim and and. And she basically was extremely intimate with Jesus, but she had nothing to do with the church. The church is an institution. Jesus isn't about the institution. It's about having a relationship, intimacy with Jesus. And thankfully, I was in vacation mode, because I probably would have got up and gone over and said something, but Gracie would have had to restrain me. But what I wanted to say to her was, you can't have Jesus if you're unwilling to be a part of his church. Why? Because the church is Christ's bride. He's made a covenant to his bride. He's passionately committed to his bride and the covenant he's made to her. And if you're claiming to be intimate with Jesus while refusing to be a part of his bride, whether intentionally or unintentionally, you're declaring that Jesus is unfaithful to his bride. In one sense, you are claiming Jesus to be an adulterer. That he can be in covenant relationship to his bride while on the side having a relationship with you? Listen, Jesus died for his bride. When his bride was filthy, ugly, unclean, he beautified her with his own beauty. And yet you have the audacity to claim that Jesus is into you while refusing to be a part of his bride? Christ saves a people who by their coming together, they are able to grow together into Christ's likeness. And this is why Paul calls us to keep our eyes on the godly and mature examples among us. Your growth as a Christian is dependent upon how much you engage with other mature Christians in your life. There's no such thing as Christianity in isolation. You must invite yourself into other people's lives and invite others into your life. Your growing as a Christian is dependent upon obeying this command that Paul 
has given. Well, as I was studying this week for this sermon, I spent some time reflecting on how all of you, members of Royal York Baptist Church, have been an example to me in my faith. And I don't have time to share about every single one of you, so don't be mad if I don't mention you. But I thought I would share a few of my reflections in order to encourage you to know that there are certain things about you that I want to be more like. I want to be more like Mackie and Anne in the way they eagerly serve with joy, in the way they're always full of thanksgiving, no matter how difficult their circumstances are. I want to be like Marion for her perseverance and faithfulness to her husband, Doug, for how many years? 60 years? Next year, 60 years. I want to be more like Natalie in her childlike faith, only ever needing to be reminded of God's promises, in her perseverance and endurance in raising two boys as a single mom. I want to be more like Melvin and Pat in their passion for missions and seeing the gospel spread to the nations. I want to be more like Jess in her servant-heartedness with how she cares specifically for her grandmother day in and day out. She's truly an example of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. I want to be more like Brian, his steadfastness and perseverance in the midst of incredible physical pain. For most of us here, it's, it's easy for us to get to church on Sunday. But every time he's at prayer on Tuesdays and every time he's here on Sunday mornings, it's a testament to his faithfulness and his steadfastness to the Lord. I want to be more like Beverly in her commitment to her local church. Few have any idea of the amount of outside things she says no to in order to be faithful to her local church. In her commitment to redeeming the time. I want to be more like Alfredo Sr., in his genuine love for people, his excitement and hunger for the preaching of God's word every Sunday, I always know there will be at least one person who hears my sermon. (laughs) I want to be more like Christina in her hunger for the word of God, in her desire to encourage others with her words. I want to be more like Anthony in the way he loves and cherishes Christina, in his simple but deep faith and trust in God. I want to be more like Jim in his humility and gentleness. I want to be more like Grace O in in her gentleness. I want to be like Kathy Tran in her passion for the lost. I want to be more like Jay in his wisdom. He's far wiser than he looks. I want to be more like my wife. I have to mention her. In her love for the lost, in all the ways she serves, those so few see, in her fearlessness to wrestle with God. I genuinely thank God for all of you. And it's so wonderful to know that if a young man or a young lady came into our church and got saved, I would be able to point them to a bunch of people and tell them, go follow their example. Go sit with Alfredo and watch how he listens to God's word. Go spend time with Bev and and see how she redeems the time. Now there are two things from this command that I think we ought to take from it. First, the obvious is we ought to obey it, imitate, watch and imitate. But, but I think there's two other things, two implications that we ought to take from this command to, to watch and imitate the godly among you. The first is this, you ought to be committed 
to your local church. It doesn't have to be this local church, but you need to be committed to a local church. You cannot grow as a Christian apart from being a part of a local church. Secondly, you ought to strive to be that example for others. You ought to be able to say like Paul, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Think about this. How you live your life can have eternal consequences for others. So after Paul gives his command, he now gives us the reasons for the command. And that's why the word for in verse 18 is so important. He's about to explain the reasons for why he's telling us to imitate and watch the godly among us. And there are two primary reasons, but I've broken them down into three for simplicity's sake. So the first reason for why you ought to imitate and watch the godly among you is that you are susceptible to the allurement of sin. Look at verse 18. My pages have gone all the way to Colossians, sorry. Verse 18. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. So the reason for watching and imitating godly Christians is there are many who walk as enemies of the cross of Jesus. And the point that Paul's making is this, if you're not careful, you too could become one of them. Now, we're not totally sure who, the, who these many are that Paul's referring to. But most likely, based upon the context, the many who are walking as enemies of the cross were once former professing Christians. They once identified with Christ and his church, but over time they were enticed by the world. Now, why do I think Paul's referring to former professing Christians? Well, I think there's two reasons. One He's exhorting the believers to follow after godly examples lest they become like the so-called many who now live a lifestyle that reveals their enemies of the cross. But the second reason is the manner of which Paul speaks of the many. It hints at the fact that they were once former professing Christians. What does he say in verse 18? For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears. With tears. Paul's disposition towards these people is one of sorrow, brokenness, pity. Now, we know that Paul has sorrow for the loss in in general, but it's very likely that his tears in this passage are a result from him knowing that these individuals seemed to have indicate at one point in their lives that they were Christians. Now, whether they were once professing Christians or not, there's a lesson here for us. This should be the disposition of our hearts towards the loss. One of tears, sorrow, pity. And I confess that my heart isn't often like that toward the loss. But here's Paul's point. Watch and imitate godly Christians lest you be enticed by the sin in this world like these former Christians were. In other words, 
One of the defenses or the the means of grace God has given you against the allurement of sin is by immersing yourself around godly and mature Christians. You're susceptible to sin in ways that you wouldn't be if you simply gave your time to watching and following other godly Christians. You know, the, the Bible describes the Christian life as a spiritual war. Which means that if you want to win a war, what do you do? Or if you want to thrive in the war, be victorious in the war, you should find the best trained soldiers and learn how they fight. If you want to be the best athlete, go and watch and observe the best athlete. And I think many Christians are are far too content to survive the war, but very few care to be victorious in the war. Now in verse 19, Paul describes these individuals and what they've become as enemies of the cross of Jesus. And I want you to see that the reason Paul refers to them as enemies of the cross isn't because of their verbal hatred or and vitriol against Christianity. Right? These are not people like Richard Dawkins No, no, Paul's saying the reason they're enemies of the cross is due to their conduct. The way they live is in contrast to the cross of Jesus. It's in conflict conflict to the cross. It's their walk that makes them enemies. Now, Paul lists four things to describe them, but I've summarized them into three categories. So Paul speaks of their one, their final destination, two, what they worship, And three, what their minds are focused on. So look at verse 19. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. So first we see here their final destination. As Paul writes, their end is destruction. The way they walk and live in this world has placed them on a path that will lead to their eternal destruction. It's not just that God will righteously judge them for their sin. It's also that their way of life is destructive in its nature, which will culminate in their ultimate demise when they face God on the day of judgment. And this is what awaits every person who lives as an enemy of the cross of Jesus Christ. Is that you? Well, in the next descriptions, he speaks not just only to their destination, but also to their conduct. And we see here what they worship, what they worship. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame. Two different things that convey a similar idea. What they worship. Their God is their belly. What does Paul mean by this very strange phrase? Well, the word here, belly, in the Greek can actually have the idea of the seat of the inward life, of feelings and desires, the inward control center of a person. It's actually equivalent to what heart refers to in English. So you could accurately translate this statement that Paul's making into English, their God is their heart. 
It would capture what Paul is trying to convey. Paul's saying these people's desires, appetites, their, their, controls, their control center, their heart, everything that they desire, it governs their lives. Which leads to, as Paul writes, their God being their belly. See, as Christians, part of the reason why God is our God is because we seek to have our lives governed by his will, not our desires and appetites. And I I think there's such irony in this statement. Their God is their belly or their God is their heart for our culture specifically. Why? What's the number one thing you hear over and over again in our culture? Follow your heart. Do what your heart's telling you to do. Paul's saying that that will lead to your condemnation. And friend, if you're living your life based upon that idea, that way of thinking, follow your heart, trust your heart, Paul believes that that will lead to your destruction. Why? Because as the scriptures tell us, your heart is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? See, a life governed by the heart will lead to condemnation, but a life governed by Christ will lead to salvation. Now, not only is their God their belly, but they also glory in their shame. More literally, their glory is in their shame. See, for the Christian, our glory is in Christ Jesus. But for the enemy of the cross, their glory is in their shame. What does Paul mean by this? Well, he's speaking of Roman culture, which was given over to sensual pleasures, specifically sexual pleasures. It was a culture that delighted in sexual perversions. And so when Paul says they glory in their shame, he's not speaking of people who, who do wrong things, they do sinful things, and they feel shame about it. There's a lot of people in our society who are like that. They, they still have a moral compass. Though they're not Christians, though they don't follow Jesus, they are still morally upright people, so to speak. And they feel shame about doing certain things. But that's not who Paul's referring to here. He's referring to people who glory in their perversion. They glory, they delight in their depravity. Particularly in relation to their sexual endeavors. In our culture today, I don't think there's a better example than the Pride Parade. And and I'm not picking on the Pride Parade just because of the Pride Parade. No, no. Listen, I'm happy to address other things too, like adultery and, and, and many other sexual sins. But the Pride Parade, I think, captures what Paul is conveying here. This this group of people coming together to celebrate and to glory in their perversion. To do that which according to God should be their shame. But it has become their glory. And we ought to, with Paul, not judge and be full of anger, but have tears in our eyes. You know, I truly do know individuals who once seemed to be walking with Jesus... And now they're exactly what Paul describes here. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame. I think of my former best friend, who used to go on the streets with me and evangelize, who would be a part of church life with me, we'd pray together. And now he is one of these individuals who glory in their shame. 
His God is His belly. So we've seen their destination. We've seen who they worship, which is ultimately self. And third, we also see what their minds are focused on. As Paul puts it, with minds set on earthly things. They're captivated by this world and what it has to offer. They're bewitched by it. Their minds are infatuated with all that this world can give them. Paul's not against enjoying enjoying things in this world. I was just in Spain in two weeks and I enjoyed God's creation. I enjoyed the wines and the cheeses and a lot of good food in Spain. I enjoyed it. But Paul is against the enjoyment of this world at the expense of acknowledging and glorifying God. As I said, I was in Spain and I've come to learn something about Spanish culture. The Spaniards are actually one of the hardest people to reach in the world for the gospel. My Gracie's dad was a missionary there for 10 years or so. And very few, there were some, very few came to faith. They're one of the hardest people to reach because, in one sense, Spaniards have their best life now. They have the ocean, the warm weather, the food. and It's just a relaxing, comfortable place to be. We go there for vacation. They have a yearly vacation there. They have their siestas. I don't know why we don't, but they do. It's a very comfortable, pleasure-satisfying society. And none of those things, the going out for cheese and wine and going to the ocean, none of those things are inherently evil. In fact, they're good things. These things are meant to be enjoyed. Yet so easily, because of our sinful hearts, we become captivated. We become enticed, ensnared by them. Where your mind is given over to them and they become their li- your little idols. And if you're not careful, you can be committed to church. Committed to coming on Sunday mornings, but during your week, your mind is only ever enraptured with the things of this earth. Things like eating, drinking, comfort, entertainment, career, having more in your life, having a bigger home. One of the things I I love to... sounds weird. I love showering. And... um, I know it's strange. I, I love to shower. In the summer, I'll, I'll sometimes shower three times a day. Just, I just love to get in the shower and enjoy a nice shower. And, and often I will shower before I go and play a sport. And Gracie will always say to me, why are you going to shower when you're about to go get sweaty and dirty? And I'll say, because I want to be clean before I go and play. And I understand my logic is wrong and hers is right in this, but I'll still go and shower. And sadly, I think a lot of Christians live that way. What do I mean? They go to church. They're excited to go to church on Sunday. They're committed to being at church to have their shower. And by Monday, they've already set their minds again back on earthly things. They've already again polluted themselves because their mind and their heart, though it's committed to Jesus on Sunday and they truly do love Jesus, the minute Monday shows up, their hearts are enraptured with the things of this world. Calvin said that man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols. 
So Paul's telling these believers and us to watch and imitate the godly Christians around you, lest you become like these individuals who have sold their souls to the pleasures of the world. So Paul has commanded us to watch and imitate. And the reason, reason number one for that was you're susceptible to the allurement of sin. The second reason why you ought to watch and imitate the godly among you is that you are a citizen of heaven. Look at verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now everything that Paul states in verse 20 to 21 is in contrast to all that he said in describing those who, has walk as, who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. In fact, you could almost make these statements parallel. Their end is destruction. Our end is resurrection life. They are citizens of the earth. We are citizens of heaven. Their God is their own desires. Our God is the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is who they are, but this is who you are as a follower of Jesus. And the first thing Paul says here is that we are citizens of heaven. God has your passport. And in it, it reads, citizen of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And the reason you ought to watch and imitate worthy examples, because you're a citizen of heaven, and you ought to conduct yourself in a manner that reflects that citizenship. And the means by which to do that is to get around some other citizens who represent their heavenly country well. And this takes us all the way back to chapter 1, verse 27, where Paul first commands the believers here in Philippi that we walk as citizens in a manner worthy of the gospel. So we're citizens of heaven. We belong to God's kingdom, and therefore we ought to watch and imitate citizens better than we. But Paul also gives us a third reason for why we ought to watch and imitate the godly among us. And the third reason is this. You have a glorious future, Christian. You have a glorious future. Look at verse 20 and 21 again. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Paul indicates two things about our future. First, he mentions the return of a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're citizens of heaven and we await a Savior. Now that word, await, is important. It's a word that will serve to examine your heart if you allow it. The word has the idea of waiting with anticipation, a longing for something to occur. In other words, the Christian is one who's waiting with anticipation for her deliverer to break through the night with the morning dawn. And I say this word Await will serve you in examining your heart if you simply ask the question, am I in a state of anticipation for for the return of my glorious Savior? Are you like the five-year-old on Christmas Eve with such longing and excitement for Christmas morning to dawn? Or are you like the old man who sees Christmas Day just like any other day? See, if we find little 
or no longing for the return of our Savior, it's very likely that we've become too comfortable in this world. Now in this short little phrase, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul actually gives us three distinct titles that define Jesus. And they're theologically rich. First he says, he's a Savior. God has declared, the Bible has made known that Jesus is the Savior of the world. As the Apostle Peter put it in Acts 4, verse 12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is one name, one man, by which we must be saved. He is Jesus Christ. Jesus came into this world the first time as a babe. He lived a sinless life. He then died for our sins, and and in His death, He secured our salvation when He died on that cross. And when He returns, He will bring to completion what He started. He is the Savior of the world. Secondly, Paul says that we await the Savior who is also Lord. Lord. As Paul writes earlier in chapter 2, verse 9 to 11, in light of the fact that Christ has humbled himself to the point of death, taking on the form of a servant, Paul writes, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christ is Lord over all the universe. He's Lord over you, whether you acknowledge it or not. And third thing we see here about Jesus is that he is the Christ. Christ is not his last name. It is a title. That is, he is the Messiah, the anointed one of God. This is who we as Christians are waiting with anticipation for the Savior and Lord and Christ of the universe. And maybe you're here this morning, and maybe you grew up in the church, or maybe you like coming to church, but you're not actually a follower of Jesus. And I simply want to ask you why. Why not? Why don't you embrace the Savior of the world and the Lord of the universe? He is worthy of your devotion. He is worthy of your worship. He is worthy of your praise. He died for your sins that you might live unto Him. But you must abandon self. You must abandon the God of your belly and embrace the Savior. Cling to Him as a sailor clings to his life vest in a shipwreck. He's your only hope. For those who have trusted in Him and have followed Him, He returns to deliver them. But for those who have refused Him and have instead given their hearts to the things of this world, He returns to unleash His righteous judgment upon all who refuse His kindness and His grace. Don't delay in coming to Him as the Savior and Lord of your life. So we're citizens of heaven. We have a glorious future because our Savior is coming back. 
But that's not all that's glorious about our future. There's something that our Savior Jesus will do when he returns. As he writes in verse 21, he will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. When Christ comes back, one of his main objectives is to take this lowly body, your lowly body, this body of humility, and he's going to transform it to be like his glorious body. And in that moment, you and I, who are followers of Christ, will be fully conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And Paul's confidence in chapter 1, verse 6, will be realized. Christ will have completed the work he began in us. This is the hope of the Christian. Not that we'll be separated from our bodies and we'll go float in the clouds with Jesus. That is not the Christian hope. The Christian hope is resurrection life in a new creation. That our bodies will be made new after the likeness of Christ's resurrected glorious body. I have horrible flat feet, uh, which is horrible because I play sports. I don't know why God did that, but... um, we, when we were in Spain, we probably walked about 260,000 steps. And Gracie's like a little rabbit, just wandering everywhere. And, and I'm trying to keep up with her. And if you have flat feet, you know what I mean. Your feet begin to ache, your knees start to hurt, your lower back begins to hurt. And, and I, I am looking forward to the day where I have new feet. And, and I know that, that many of you in this room have gone through far more physical pain than I've ever gone through. And I know you're longing for the day when you will experience new resurrected bodies. But you know what? The glory of the resurrection isn't merely that we're going to get new bodies so that our aches and our pains will be gone. Though that's true and it's marvelous. The true glory of the resurrection is that we're going to be made like Jesus. That is the glory of the resurrection. And for the first time in our lives, we'll feel fully at home in our bodies. And how will Jesus do this? Well, look at verse 21. By the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself, Christ wields a power that enables him to subject everything in the universe to himself. And that same power, Paul tells us, he is going to wield in order to transform our lowly bodies into his glorious body. That's how he's going to do it. And all of this, Paul is saying, All of this is why we ought to watch and imitate worthy examples of Christian devotion. Now, in light of all this, Paul gives us one last command in chapter 4, verse 1. And that command is simple. Take your stand in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. So in light of all this, stand firm. Paul here reiterates his deep affection and love for them. 
And then he calls them in light of that to stand firm thus in the Lord. And that word thus really is better translated stand firm in this way in the Lord. Stand firm in this way in the Lord. In what way? Well, this isn't the first time Paul has called these believers to stand firm. We know from chapter 1, verse 27, which is Paul's first exhortation, he says something similar to them. He desires for them to stand firm in one spirit. And so the main body of the letter of Philippians is from chapter 1, verse 27, to chapter 4, verse 1. And so you have almost like a bookend. Stand firm and stand firm. Which means to stand firm in this way, in the Lord, is to live by all that Paul has primarily instructed from chapter 1, verse 27, to chapter 3, verse 21. Now, I'm not going to cover all that this morning, so you can go back and read it all. That's what Paul means by standing firm, thus in the Lord. Live like this. Paul was their apostle. He was beloved by these people in Philippi. He loved them deeply. And throughout this letter, Paul expresses his affection for them. He tells them he yearns for them with the affection of Christ in chapter 1, verse 8. And here he, he says he loves and longs for them. They're his joy and his crown. And though I will never be a quarter of the man that Paul was, I hope you will hear my heart when I say to you as your pastor, therefore my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word brings life. And by keeping it, Lord, there is great reward. Father, we pray that each of us would seek to respond rightly to what we have heard this morning. For some of us, it would mean being more committed to being a part of the church. For others, it might mean repenting of their sins and trusting in Christ this morning. For others, it might be striving to be an example to others. For others, it's simply those who maybe have their minds just so much on earthly things that they need to reorient their life. Lord, I ask that by your Spirit you would grant all of these things for the glory of Jesus and for the good of your people. And we pray in Christ's name, amen.